Welcome to the Consortium Podcast, an academic audio blog of Kepler Education. Kepler is a consortium of independent classical Christian teachers unified by a shared vision for student flourishing. This episode comes from a talk given at the Consortium of Classical Educators in the summer of 2023. Well, thank you. Um, I'm going to steal something that I actually heard first years ago from an EPC pastor, um, Rufus Smith, if you know Rufus Smith. He, in this very room, after being given an introduction by Merrill Blackburn, said, said by, by, uh, by all means, and I'll say this to you, Scott, in his honor, of all the re- introductions that I've received, my friend, that my, by far has to be the most recent. So thank you. <laughs> thank you for that. Uh, all that to say is uh, a good bit of music is, is in my day and on the weekends, and that's why I'm here, and to tell two jokes and then sit down. So, um, so hopefully this will be a profitable time uh, to you. Um, so I do want to extend my thanks. Thanks to Scott and Tammy uh, for the invitation to be with you today. It's, uh, if you don't know me, I am a music teacher who grew up in Alexandria. I grew up going uh, to the church across the street, and my wife went to this church, and we both graduated from this school in 2003. So this is a homecoming of sorts for me. Uh, it's not the first time coming home. I think it's, as a good Trinitarian, it's my third over the years. But it's always a, a joy to be back in a place that has meant so much to me and my wife, Sarah. Um, and I think really, uh, doubly so, it's a, it's a place where, um, I guess you could say it's joy in this instance, pressed down, shaken together, running over, to be back in this place to talk about something that's very near and dear to me, the great blessing that is classical Christian education. Um, and I think that it's meant so much to me over the years um, in seeing the fruit of that. Um, and so this place where I got my schooling, albeit it wasn't a classical Christian education, it was a Christian education. And I'm very much thankful for that. In our time together for the next little bit, just to kind of give you a signpost of what I aim to do with you here, is I want to take you through a few things and look at the notion of music and singing in the role of Christian education. And I guess you could say by extension, not to step on on Brian's toes, but all of discipleship as well. Um, But before we do that, I'd like to begin with prayer. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we thank you um, that we can come before you now with, uh, with uh, hearts that are thankful, bellies that are full from a good time of fellowship and food. We thank you for the fellowship in your Son. We thank you for the encouragement that we can draw from this weekend's conference. And I ask, Lord, that you uh, would bless our time now as we consider the joy and beauty of music in Christian education. And we do give you thanks and praise in Jesus' name. Amen. So the title of this talk uh, is um, Some Enchanted Reasoning, you know, to riff on the musical, uh, the song, uh, Music's Joy and Beauty in Christian Education. And so in the next 30 minutes or so, I would like to look at a few questions by way of framing the discussion by answering a few uh, questions that I hope will guide us and should guide us as Christians in how we consider this high noble calling of Christian education. And my focus is not to come in and talk about broadly. I'm going to drill down, as uh, Renee said, as the music expert uh, here, or just the guy who's, um, who said, sure, I'll do that. Yeah. Um, um, but we, we want to look at those questions. I thought it would just keep us moving along, and hopefully we'll jump right in there. So the first of those questions, without any further ado, is this. Is music, first and foremost, a core curricular subject? Simply put, you know what I'm going to say. <laughs> yes. Yes, it is. You might say, but isn't music more suited as an extracurricular uh, subject or to those people who are more given to it, who have the gift of music? To which I would answer again, no. (laughs) No, simple answer. But this is going to be the starting place of my talk today, and hopefully you'll be able to track with me across this and be able to agree, even if you don't fully understand what I'm saying uh, in the moment maybe, but hopefully we will all be able to coalesce around some principles that should uh, adhere us as Christians trying to train students in, in what it means to be made in the image of their Heavenly Father. Ultimately, that is what we're after, is training our our children 
and other people's children that they've entrusted to us, in my case, teaching at a, a school where uh, we come in loco parentis, right? We come alongside the parents. They've asked us to, hey, they've outsourced the music jokes to me. So they, the, the music dad jokes, that is a genre that I'm happy to uh, say that I have dabbled in from time to time. But what is the question? Uh, well, is it cr- extracurricular? Well, no. Music is not extracurricular. Music is central. Um, and it's the starting place here, as I want to, as I said, present a framework of what you could call in my talk title, some enchanted reasoning. You know, some enchanted evening. You may see a stranger, right? Um, that's as far as the, the riffing goes. But singing and music making, I want to impress upon you, and hopefully you wouldn't have too far in, um, this doesn't bother your sensibilities, but singing and music making are not incidental or extracurricular to what God has called us to do and be in this life and in the life to come. Music is not just another avenue of interest for the Christian. That needs to be said. No doubt you might be bothered by that statement because you live in a dark world and your eyes are accustomed to it, right? But we need to wake up and realize that music is not just another avenue of interest for the Christian. But much like we read in the words of C.S. Lewis that we all know and love and J.R.R. Tolkien's mythic creations of Narnia and Middle-earth, respectively, ours is a musical creation. We have much to be indebted for, Lewis and Tolkien, putting that, that imagination, putting pen to paper, and giving us a way of things to, to kind of start, start to visualize or understand maybe what it would have been like to have creation sung into existence. And therefore, we should carefully consider that God did not just merely Uh, speak His creation into existence, He sang it. Our God ultimately is a singing God, and I want that to be something that is near to our minds in this discussion. He sang creation into existence, and that is what is shown so beautifully in both Lewis's uh, and Tolkien's telling of that, that they do so eloquently. Both these great men, there's a reason for that, and it's worth considering just momentarily. There's a reason both these men Uh, in their own respective ways, spoke of the creation of their earth, Middle Earth for Tolkien, right, and and Narnia for Lewis, that they sang it. It's because they were steeped in the pre-Enlightenment writings, and they also knew the scriptures. They knew etymology, and therefore they could trace the meanings of words uh, over time. They knew that all speech, in a sense, is musical, and by that I mean it has a rhythm, it has a pitch, it has a timbre. Um, I, am not, I am singing to you right now, right? I'm not singing to you, right? I'm, but my voice has a pitch and a rise and a fall and a rhythm. It's irregular. It's not sing-songy, right? Hickory dickory dock, the mouse ran up the clock. No, hopefully, if I start to get into that mode, you'll say, oh, that's very boring, and then you'll take two sips of coffee there, right? which is my fail-safe to keep you in the room. But music um, is the very essence of our speech because we're made uh, where we have pitch and rhythm and timbre. And Lewis and Tolkien knew that, um, that, they, that this was the case, even though they did, probably didn't spend as much time on this as, as maybe even I uh, wish they would have given all the great resources they have given us in education and reading and learning. But they knew Uh, that in most other modern languages, besides English, there's just one word for singing. There's just one word that encompasses the action of singing and elevating your tone, not multiple words that can confuse what it means to sing. So as we should, they had a broader view of singing and what God's speech might be like. Again, as I said, if you read The Magician's Nephew, if you haven't read that, if you read that chapter 7 and 8, The Creating of Narnia, it is beautiful, it is eloquent, it is very enlightening in what it could have looked like in a, in a way to have the God of the universe breathe life on tone and create the world, right? And if you spend some time in the scriptures, pay attention to the words shout in the Psalms, pay attention to the words speak. These words all have tone and rhythm. So yes, God did speak creation into existence, but all speech is musical. So uh, that, that should be something that we, we keep close at hand, and I, I hope that that is something that you don't find very much of a disagreement in me saying. 
so uh, if you haven't read Magician's Nephew, no doubt you, you have, read it again, read it out loud, um, and really, and, and be like the cabbie there, right? Um, it's wonderful, a wonderful story, um, and I, I highly commend it to you because of many reasons, but not the least of which is the truly beautiful perspective that is how uh, Lewis is able to communicate the singing creation that we've all inherited. All right, now you might ask, okay, what does singing, Jared, what does singing creation into existence have to do with Christian education? Today, especially, what in the world does that have to do with the price of tea in China, right? Well, in a word, I would say, because that seems to be my modus operandi here in this talk, is everything, right? Everything. What does it have to do? Well, it has to do with everything. And I know what you're thinking, right? <laughs> you're like, well, of course, the music guy is going to say music is essential. Well, duh, right? That's called Job Security 101. I've taken that course, right? Um, but in all seriousness, as Scott mentioned yesterday, the Children's Shorter Catechism um, highlights that what our, our chief calling is, or the way it words it is, the chief end of man is to be uh, able to say that we glorify God and enjoy Him forever. So you could say in a sense that ultimately we are not homo sapiens, right? even though we're called homo sapiens, right? the thinking man from the Latin. We're not even homo faber or homo faber, right? man the maker. right? What are we? Well, we're homo adorans, we're man the worshiper. That's first and foremost. The principal and most recognizable way we exhibit this is through singing and music making, right? This is the most accessible way that Christians through time have and continue to do to exhibit that quality that we are made to worship God. We are made in His image to echo back all our days songs of praise, right? Both in how we live, our very existence, not to be too metaphysical, our very existence, if music and sound is space, is motion in time, we are that, right? Think of the little whirly tube that you would, woo, you know, or the, you would take a rod and go through the air, right? It makes a sound, it makes a tone um, in a sense. Um, and this is something that we, should, we shouldn't be too uh, bothered by saying. But therefore, if you are going to start to codify this in principles ways, singing and music instruction must be a central component in Christian education and discipleship. Full stop. Sermon over. Not really. Um, it cannot be extracurricular. It cannot. It cannot be. You know what can be extracurricular if we want to really be uh, truthful? Latin. Omnibus. No tomato throwing, right? Um, <laughs> in classical education. Now, I, I'm not calling for that to be extracurricular by any means, far from it. I'm actually pretty thankful. Um, but if you look at things from the perspective of God's economy of goods, music is not just an add-on. Latin is, right? Modern omnibus is. Singing is not. And of course, as I said, I'm not calling to cancel that. I am very thankful for all these areas to study. In fact, we get that liberty uh, it's all ours in Christ Jesus to study that. So I'm not calling for the removal of Latin and omnibus from classical Christian education. I don't know anybody that would do that. Otherwise, they would have a very, they might as well go into car sales, right? Um, but music and singing should be given as much time in our Christian education of our children as grammar and literature. Once again, it's worth highlighting, music and singing should be given as much time in the education of our children as grammar and literature is given. Uh, here, a contemporary American theologian, James B. Jordan, uh, puts a finer point on this than I uh, ever would be able to, and he, he writes this. He says, music is far more central to the kingdom of God than is essay writing and literature. He continues, biblical people were expected to be musicians, they were not expected to be able to read and write because before Gutenberg and the printing press, few people could or even needed to read and write. Think about it. A lot of Christians lived and died and weren't able to read and write. Once again, he writes, the Father seeks worshipers, not intellectuals. The Father seeks worshipers, not intellectuals. I think he's right. He goes on to say, it's fine to be an intellectual, but we must be worshipers. And sometimes we get that backwards, right? Homo sapiens, man the thinker, 
Homo faber, man the maker. No, Homo adorans, man the worshiper. How are you going to be equipped to be a worshiper? Well, you've got to sing, right? So this is where we must principally be, uh, begin. And that's the place that says singing is not extracurricular in God's kingdom. After all, that's what we're doing. This, I loved yesterday the, the appeal that we are classical Christian educators, be it in a home setting, in a school hall setting, in a co-op setting. That's what we're doing. We're not classical educators that just happen to sprinkle a little Bible and Jesus in, right? We are Christians. The classical modifies the Christian. It, it references something that is outside of our time that has been good. The best of Christendom we bring to bear and even highlight the worst, right? The negative parables of, of history, we can bring that to bear to show our students. But we've got to see that music is not extracurricular. And it's from there that we can then restore a properly enchanted view of education. And what I want to to say winsomely and not finger-waggingly is that we have a great opportunity and a joy to better understand our Heavenly Father through song. If that makes no sense to you, stop, as Tracy said. Think about it. Meditate on what that means. We get to grow in how we reflect the musicality of God. Do you think of God as musical? Do you stop and muse on the creator of music? the one who is music. It's in singing and, and music making fundamentally that we are being like God and better able to exhibit to those around us what it means to be filled with the Spirit of God. Think of the word spirit, ruach, right? Or breath. Music and singing is breath intoned, right? It, it's Jim Jordan uh, also has said that if, if the second person of the Trinity is Jesus, then the third person of the Trinity is, is the Spirit, right? In a sense, the third person of the Trinity is the music of God. Think of that. If the Word became flesh, the ratio, right, and the music of God, what is the music of God doing? It's glorifying the other persons of the Godhead. Well, what does music do? It glorifies the other elements of truth and goodness. More on that later. But we want to train our students to be recreative singers, not just merely receptacles of music. I'm so thankful for the technology that we are all afforded in listening to symphonies that we would never be able to darken the door of today via a Spotify playlist. But it has, uh, there is a trade-off that we must keep at, at the forefront of our mind, which is we forget that we need to be recreators holy recreation in a sense, not just receivers of music, you know, or other media in a mind-numbing Novocaine type way, right? We need to recreate, and music does give us that. So uh, hopefully that is a point you, you agree with. Um, and next, I would like to actually shift the focus that what does that robust music education look like, Jared? If you, okay, so I'm with you. You haven't lost me yet. Um, what does that look like? How should we engage with music in the training and education of the children the Lord has given to us? Well, you can imagine I'm going to give you a one-word answer, and it's going to rhyme with ring and ding, right? Sing. <laughs> and if you want, I can give you two words. Sing daily. Or another two words. Sing often, right? Um, the Christian education should be musical, first and foremost. Our homes and our school hall should be filled with singing and music-making. We are not rearing silent children to be filled with information in their heads. We know this. You've read Jamie Smith. You've read other people here on this. It's not, education is not information, regurgitation. It's formation, and it's forming loves, right, the order of affections. Um, we are big about the lost tools of learning in the classical world. A friend of mine, Scott Annual, and a mentor said, it's the lost tools of loving we need to recover, right? What are our loves? To riff off of uh, Dorothy Sayers and I guess to pull from Augustine. We've got to do that. How do we do that? We're not rearing children to be quiet little sitting in a box um, with heads that are filled with knowledge and some reasoning skills that they can then go synthesize on an exam, right? No, we know that. We're not called to be Gnostics, that mind and body are separate. We're called, in actuality, to be full-bodied Christians, which means that we must train our students and let the music they sing and hear form and better shape them into who our Heavenly Father would have them be.
That means they must sing an excellent singing curriculum. Have you thought about this? Just as they read through the remarkable story of their older brothers and sisters in the faith, right? They see those stories coming to them in the scriptures and also in the great books, right? That we, we esteem highly in this classical Christian education tradition. This means that we sing to them and have them sing as they're able so that they can grasp what you could call the language of music, right? Music is a language. It has a grammar. It has a phonics. It has a history. We just put every, everybody, I'm going to take music, right? <laughs> it's just, well, we have English, don't we? We also have grammar rules. We also have literature. We have Brit British literature, American lit Southern Gothic literature. Yes, sir, right? We have all these things, but we have just music, right? Music and choir. Oh, that we could develop that sense of musicality where we could see music as a language, not just as some ethereal thing that God sprinkles some people on the gift of. If you see music as a language, then you can take it up at 35. It won't be as easy as your five-year-old, but you can take it up, and you can take it up with joy, and you can show your five-year-old that music is important, even if you never are able to sing with the joy and the skill that your five-year-old can. And that is a blessing, even though it may not feel like it in the moment, right? We must be Christians who sing. Our churches must sing. Not just the praise team or the choir. I mean, full disclosure, I am a choir director. That's my training, right? But so is our Heavenly Father. We are all His choristers. And you might have grown up hearing the folk song... Um, which my wife is goading me into sing for you. I, I don't know. Are you feeling awake? I think you are. Uh, but, I, it, you know, the song goes, uh, all God's children got a place in the choir. Some sing out, some sing out, uh, some sing low, some sing out higher, some sing out loud on the telephone wire. You've heard this before? All God's children got a place in the choir, or some translations, all God's critters, which in some ways I like that better, because, <laughs> right? I mean, not like it's pejorative or, you know, I'm a, you know, these students I teach, they can be critters. But I mean, you know what I mean, that all God, you stop on a morning, drink your coffee and listen to the bird song, right? All God's critters got a place in the choir, singing out in praise to him, the rocks, right? The mountains, the hills, right? The morning stars, right? This all, this idea of that all God's children got a place in the choir um, is an important one. Um, our God is a heavenly uh, choir director, you could say. He's directing us all to sing, whether we're in a pew or a seat, but he's also directing us to sing ultimately in the cracks of our days. Our bodies are in cruciform, right? In, in responsive praise is not just, I love the Lord and what he has done for me. Yes, indeed, right? It's sing out. It's joyful. It is a responsive praise. What is... Um, is it Augustine that said, I'm riffing off my notes here, that only the lover sings, right? Um, very important uh, thing to consider. So uh, again, the scriptures encourage us to sing because God sings. So in a sense, I could rest my case. Would you like the rest of the time? You know, um, But we need to take it beyond that, right? Because we all agree to that in some ways. We understand the principle. We're here, aren't we? Uh, we're not here to just punch another uh, notch in our weird card, hoping we get 10 stars on that card and they give us a free book, right? Maybe they give us the, uh, the book, the, the nobility, the book that you mentioned, David Hicks, this morning. You know, it's so expensive, right? <laughs> Um, no, we're here because we, in a sense, get this. It, the devil is in the details, as we know, right? It's how are you going to work this out? But you have to begin from a place that, number one, says that all of, of music and singing for God's people is not extracurricular, and you have to understand that you are made in the image of a singing God. And so he's modeling what it means to be the chief musician that we read about in the Psalms. Think, think of the Zephaniah um, 3 passage that says, He will rejoice over you with singing. Think as I alluded to the Job 38 passage where it says God, uh, where he asks Job in a rebuking manner that we gloss over because of the, it's not the larger point of the story, but he says, where were you, Job, when the morning stars sang together? We just passed right over that. Right? I say what now? Oh, we write it off. Oh, it's figurative language. Don't you know about figurative language? <laughs> yes, we know about metaphor, right? Um, think of the church's first hymnal, right? The Gaithers or the Gettys didn't put it out. It's the book of Psalms, right? And think of all the appeals to sing, of which I will give you three. Psalm 96, verse 1. Oh, sing unto the Lord a new song. Sing unto the Lord all the earth. We sang the old 100th this morning. 
Who on earth, all people on earth, sing to the Lord with cheerful voice, the old 100th sound says to us. Think of Psalm, 90, uh, Psalm 47, verse 7, uh, where it, it, it says, God is the king of all the earth, sing praises with understanding. Yeah, that's both understanding of the text, sure, but that's also understanding of how to sing. Right? It, it's all encompassed there. And then finally, uh, Psalm 104 says, I will sing unto the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praise to my God while I have my being. Psalm 104, 33. The call is clear that we all should be singing. There's no way around it. Now, do we want to hear you on your own individual uh, recording album? Probably not, right? But thanks be to God, He's not called you to do that. He's called you to sing joyfully, right? And move from glory to glory and maturity, not snobbishly, but thankfully. And that's what people like me are here for, to pull you along, right? Um, music directors and choir directors should be about helping pull people into the joy of singing rather than standing in their Alps high towers saying, I wish you would listen to more Bach, right? That's a great way to lose friends, right? Um, make myself feel better by showing you how much I know about music and you don't. It's good that we keep that healthy distance. No. <laughs> No, I mean, that our, in a sense, um, we've, we've hijacked our modern sensibilities, understand the word condescension. But Jesus, in a real sense, condescended to us. And as musicians or as educators of the arts, be it visual, be it performed, be it uh, literature and poets and novelists, we have to be able to condescend to our students in a, in a joyful and a thankful way so that they can see this wonder we keep talking about here. It's not, it's not an insignificant thing that we're saying. We all should be singing, and then from there, we should have our students in music lessons, activities, pursuits that genuinely impress upon them that they are a child of a musical God. He sings, and they sing as a glorious uh, response of praise to Him all their days. That's ultimately what we're doing. It's not about getting 4.0. It's not about getting in, accepted into Leviathan State University or Bohemoth College, if you can't quite get into uh, that place. But apart from the command to sing and to be a singing people, what can singing and music making give our children as they, as they grow, and what, uh, what might they be missing if they don't have it? Well, this is where, if I was a public school teacher, I would you know, bring out and trot out all the shiny statistics that show how music helps our students in their reasoning skills and how it helps them in their overall test scores, and yada, yada, yada. While this may be true, and no doubt it is, it misunderstands music's value and meaning. Christian parents are not trying to answer the question, what does the state or Department of Education require of you? We know this. We're here. Instead, as we know, we are seeking to answer the question, uh, or we see the question more accurately posed in the book of Micah, right? Where it says, what does the Lord require of you? And the answer is immediately given, right? To do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. This is where singing and music making stand at the ready to equip us to do just that, to be what Reverend Jordan mentioned, and I quoted earlier, the whole person participation that singing gives us, the whole person participation that singing gives us. We Christians must remember the formative and, and influential power of music. Uh, the, those of us here know that. The culture around us knows that. Think of the well-known quote, no doubt you've heard if you've been to enough conferences on, on CCE stuff, um, that you've heard attributed to Plato and sometimes even uh, Scottish activist Andrew uh, Fletcher's that says, let me write the songs of a nation and I care not who writes its laws. Let me write the songs of a nation and I care not who writes its laws. But historically, modern Christians living downstream from the Enlightenment, which is really the, the linchpin of where the watershed moment of where this really started to change, have all but forgotten the truth of this sentiment. You might ask, well, Jared, how, how do we know that's the case? Is it just something you're suggesting is the case? Well, no. Look at where the culture war has been fought in recent decades and even beyond that in the church primarily. Where have we primarily been putting uh, uh, the battle lines and drawing them in the sand as, uh, to mix metaphors? That's something I do. Corny jokes and mixed metaphors. Sorry about that. But as I see it, the Christian church has and continues to focus chiefly more on truth and goodness than on the importance of beauty. 
Beauty has, of course, as you've, you, uh, uh, between coffee sips, you know it's been a recurring theme here of our sessions this morning in the consortium. Um, but in some small measure, you have all of our speakers so far acknowledging the fact that beauty plays a vital role um, and how much we, we seemingly lack in our understanding of it. We didn't coordinate, as far as I know, Scott, on these topics, right? It, this is the overflow of the pulse of what we feel. We were just asked, give us a talk. I mean, if you're looking at this, you're like, did they give them bonus points or, uh, you know, they throw in an extra Starbucks gift card for putting beauty in their title? Um, I joked with Pastor Brian. I said, you know, you, if you, you get points for not putting beauty in. <laughs> yes, uh, exactly. <laughs> right. But it's because we don't have a good understanding of that. And we all realize that. I mean, that's, we, we've been focusing on truth and goodness uh, we've been fighting it, right? We've been fighting relativism in truth and goodness, right? We will, we will just, no, 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 God, God, there's not relative truth, uh-uh, step back, right? Not the case with beauty. We've not been fighting that in the same way. The, the, um, the beauty of art, singing, story, painting, this is what, as, uh, and Scott and I didn't collaborate, um, this is what moves and cheers us as God's people. It's how we're made. It points us beyond mere lines, brush strokes, multi-syllable words, right? Um, uh, notes and chords in my profession, right? Beauty frames truth and goodness in ways that didactic te uh, teaching cannot, or as I like to say, didactic finger-wagging, right? Cannot. The beauty of a song or a painting says what a mere textual description of it cannot. We know this because this is how our Heavenly Father has ordered all of His creation. If we stop and think about it, even in His real, revealed Word, uh, the Scriptures, it's not a book of systematic theology, right? The Bible is not a systematic textbook of doctrines at root. The Bible comes to us in the form of a story. Think about it. We read it as a narrative mostly. It's a true and real one. Because it's a narrative doesn't mean it's fiction. No. This is why it's important that we say how the Scriptures speak truth should be for us if we're faithful. How the Scriptures speak truth is just as important as what truth the Scriptures uh, speak of. We must work toward that statement. Doesn't kind of, huh, you might be stepping away from something there, right? That, that, doesn't, that we want that to not bother our modern sensibilities. So I'll say it one more time and you can test it. You know. How the scriptures speak truth is just as important as what truth and goodness it speaks. And for Christians who are seeking to understand God's, his cosmos, his revealed word, his revealed uh, qualities in nature, all the days he gives us, this needs to be something that we, we are mindful of. And this is important because there's both a formative power in the form as well as the content. This is something that's talked about in my field and in a lot of the arts fields. Um, form and content matter. It's another practical reason why music training and instruction should be regarded as helpful to the Christian in molding us into properly made humans, right? Uh, people that are made in the image of Christ. In previous eras of the church, this is the idea uh, that was manifested where singing's role in the formation and sanctification, uh, it was seen as more prevalent than we might today. Uh, think about the Protestant Reformation and the time there, which would have been considered a singing reformation. The reformers were both uh, driven to sing, and the reformers uh, used singing to spur them on in their drive to reform the church. So it should not be regarded as a coincidence that many modern churches, which seem to be at times confused, and at other times you could say outright wandering, you know, or maybe even lost, in the woods, so to speak, we have fewer people who can sing and understand God's design for singing and beauty as an extension, right? We don't understand it adequately. But in more faithful times of the church, Christians have rehearsed through song what the Lord has done for His people. 
They have been formed by it. They have sung through the Psalms, as I said, God's original hymnal, the church's first hymnal, which helped to mold them in what it means to sing to God in both times of trial and joy. There was a formative training power of singing God's word as the people of God, making us and shaping us into who he's called us to be. It's therefore understandable why the most notable figure of the Reformation, Martin Luther, would speak so boldly that pastors who could not sing or who were not trained in music should not be in gospel ministry. He didn't stop there. He used similar words about heads of schools, right? needing to be trained in singing and music, or he would, quote, not even look at them for the position. He understood what we must again as well. And no doubt this sounds foreign to you as it did to me at a point. That singing is formative and essential. Downstream of COVID, everything was, is that an essential service? Yes, it is, right? Which was the travesty of COVID in some ways, right? The dehumanizing, get, get thee behind thy Zoom screen, right? And stay there. But beyond that, returning to the idea of beauty here as we try to wrap up, I have to keep going here. I'm not ordained, uh, Pastor Rhodes, and, but this pulpit, I feel like I start to want to preach the more I put both hands on here. So I'm going to pull one off. Yeah. And this, most of these pulpits, I feel like this, but I feel like now I can stand up here. But all joking aside, um, if we look at the idea of beauty, we need to reorient our thinking about truth, goodness, and beauty. As I mentioned, if we have, and I want to argue that we have, been largely de-emphasizing the importance of beauty, as evidenced by the talks we've heard so far, we must take some corrective measures to help our students and ourselves see that beauty, the art-making, the recreative process of singing and, and, and being like God, who is the master creator, and we create, right? W-E-E, in miniature. He's macro, we are miniature. We must go about doing that. Then we don't, we're not doing this, of course, for beauty's sake. Even though we love, you know, um, love the idea of, of beauty, we don't stop at beauty for its own sake. Uh, once again, Lewis points out in a parallel analogy that beauty may be understood as, uh, if I was going to paraphrase uh, and interpolate here, that beauty, in a sense, should be understood as a light by which we see rather than something, as he, he was talking about something different, but something in itself that we see, right? So beauty is the light by which we see. We're in a dark world. The beauty that can point us to the truth um, is the helpfulness of that. Don't stop at the beauty like our culture does and then act like there's nothing else. It's just, you know, self-expression, man, I'm just saying something. Or now self-expression is I'm not saying anything at all. Yes, you are. You're not saying something and that's telling us something, right? You're always expressing something. And this has led to some consequential ideas in modern Christianity. While we have rejected the idea that uh, goodness or ethics are based on the whims of the individual. As I mentioned earlier, we, we will fight you tooth and nail if you say that truth is relative. We don't bat an eye when someone says phrases like, well, you know, beauty is in the eye of the beholder, right? Or you like what you like and I like what I like. Substitute that with you love who you love and I love who I love and we will come over that pew at that person rhetorically and say, sorry, let me, let me pray for you, right? But when it comes to beauty, we're not there. We've spent a lot of time, we've been glossing over beauty for truth and goodness sake. It's not, a, it's not intentional. It's not with malice or forethought. We're products of the enlightenment. We're great, great, great grandchildren of it. And it's not hard to imagine. We've got to, we've got to take some... Uh, corrective measures here. But we have held up truth and goodness, as I said, to a point that we've forgotten the remarkable ability of beauty's uh, ways in which it can move us in the right way. I once read a, of a Japanese Christian man, um, Masaaki Suzuki, if you've heard of him, who left Japan. It's not the Suzuki of Suzuki violin, but Suzuki may be like Smith you know, uh, name in, in Japanese, I'm not sure. But he left Japan in the 90s for Germany and the Netherlands to study, he was a, a Reformed Christian man, to study organ performance and the music of Johann Sebastian Bach. 
um, with the scholars that were the leading that education part in Amsterdam and in Europe. And Suzuki later would return home to his, his home country of Japan, and he started what was now uh, has become quite recognizable as the Bach Collegium of Japan, a performing arts choir that performs, has performed the entire catalog of Bach's musical library, both vocal and instrumental, in period instruments of the 1700s, right? So they're using old tunings and old instruments in Japan, mind you in Japan. And um, I came across an article by a German columnist uh, that, that said uh, and talked about this persuasive idea that we're talking about with beauty, where it says that Maestro Suzuki, in, a, in essence, brought box music to Japan in the 90s. Suzuki estimates that anywhere from 100 to 200 other Bach choirs have popped up around the massive country of Japan, right, around the islands. And it says that Suzuki's even responsible for the German word cantate, where we get cantata, a sung musical work, right? Popping into the Japanese vocabulary. What's even more remarkable is that Suzuki and the Bach Collegium's uh, Good Friday yearly performance of Bach's great work, the St. Matthew Passion, that we've heard about, no doubt, it draws over 2,000 people, Japanese people, who pay hundreds of dollars each year for a ticket to this ensemble's performance where they, where they can see the super titles projected of Matthew's gospel account of the Passion above them. And according to Maestro Suzuki, he says that the attendees will even come up to him after the concert asking, what is meant by this word hope that you speak of? So here you have a 300-year-old music of a German moving this entirely altogether different culture of music in a powerful way. And he goes on to talk about, that he, he believes that, uh, for the sake of time I'll, I'll gloss over that, but he, that he believes that a lot of people have come to the faith in ways that they would not have done. It's box music that has become, um, it has transcended cultural boundaries because it is, as Scott mentioned, it's meaningful, it's beautiful. Uh, it, it is... As one author writes, Bach's music, the beauty in his music is operating from a world that, and, and, and this author was talking about in, as a, the opposite of Bach's music, that, that a world without the sense of the transcendent and the mysterious and the beautiful, a universe ultimately discoverable through reason alone can only be a barren place and that the music sounding forth from such a world might be very pretty, but it can never be beautiful. And Bach's music was so steeped in biblical imagery, it was glory to glory. It was a mature way of putting uh, things out there that crossed cultural divides. And as a result, it has proved to be a great source of evangelism, no doubt more so uh, than maybe even street preaching on the, the corners of Tokyo might have been. Some of these people may have come to faith through the beauty of Bach's music that they would not have even entertained were it someone accosting them with a tract as much as we're thankful for those things. It's important to note. I, uh, I, I want to leave you with a, a few quotes here, and I'm going to skip a few things here because I, I want to keep us faithful to our time as much as possible. But for too long, I want to say, we've been myopic in our education emphasis, seeing education as putting information into our students' heads rather than formation after the one who made them. But this is a post-enlightenment idea. As you well know, if you spend any time studying this movement, it's the 1700s, the early 1700s, um, that we see the change in this. But before that, you would hear quotes from early writers and philosophers, some of which we've heard up till now. They would say statements like, the truth of art is higher than the truth of fact. We see that evidenced in, in the music of Bach showing up in Japan. It highlights that vitality. Even today, we have voices among us who are, who are, are crying out for this understanding to be uh, revived, where they say things like uh, linguist and author uh, Anthony Eslin has said, he who promotes the banal in beauty will make no courageous defender of truth and goodness. Um, similarly, a Swiss theologian Hans Urs von Balthasar uh, says uh, an even more eloquent way, where he says, when we lose beauty, we find that truth becomes more brittle and goodness loses its attractiveness. And that really is the truth. Um, creation's beauty and truth and goodness, see what I did there, must sing out 
in a glorious harmony. That's where music comes in. You want to see the harmony of these things? You want to see life as more than ones and zeros and binary metrics? Then you need to be shaped by music. You want to show your education as something beyond just putting information in? We've got more work to do. Cheerfully, thankfully, without being uh, grumps along the way. Um, I will again uh, refer to James B. Jordan, where he says uh, about what, what, would it, what should we be doing? But before that, he says, uh, or I want to ask you the final questions I leave you with, which is, um, what if we can give as much focus on singing as we give logic proofs? What if Latin was sung as much as, uh, as it was spoken or read in classical Christian education? Wouldn't that be amazing? What if in addition to Latin, music and singing became synonymous with classical Christian education? What if they said, classical Christian education, you think you don't even gather without start, you bookend everything with singing, right? It's musical because it's full-bodied. It's not Gnostic, right? It's public. Singing is public. Music making is public. It happens in time and in space. It doesn't happen in the recess of my mind, right? It can, but that's another day. Finally, the words of Jordan, as I mentioned. Oh, imagine if you got to, to do a real Christian education is, is this quote. He says, imagine if high school students, um, they should be singing through a curriculum. He says, whether they ever perform it or not. They should know the great plain song melodies, read and study the isorhythmic masses of Macho. They should um, study the seamless polyphony of Akagaim's uh, Missa Mimi, do a little bit of Joscan Dupre and, and Claude Goudamel, wallow in Bach, right? And get a taste of Mozart, Anton Bruckner, and some other modern Christian choral music. They should study the courtship of man and woman in the symphony's sonata allegro form. Reflect on the changeableness of life in the theme and variations form. Enjoy dance and conversation in the minuetto and trio form. And consider the return of Sabbath after a day of work in the rondo form. He says, well, I could go on and on. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, just consider what, it might, what you might have learned if you had had a really Christian education. And he's overwhelming and inspiring in a sense to say, what has it been that music has been for our people? We like to talk about classical education is, is the way C.S. Lewis would have been taught or the way George Washington would have been taught, right? It's the way our brothers and sisters in the faith would have been taught. They would have had music after lunch, right? You read the books of Haydn and others, uh, Bach, um, the Latin teacher was the choral master, right? Uh, Bach was the Latin teacher. He was the musician. I had fully intended to give you some practical uh, closing advice here, and I will forego that for the sake of time, uh, because I, you only brought one cup of coffee, not two. But I, I, I'm happy to speak with you in the halls or this evening. I want to encourage you uh, to, to keep singing and dancing and feasting. Um, don't lose heart, right? Give thanks that you are where you are. You have nothing to be sad about. The Lord has, has put you here, clunky and all, or maybe you're in a very good spot. Rejoice and give thanks and sing, as the hymn says, right? The Lord will answer the prayers of His people uh, who want to mature in these things. We've got to first acknowledge that we need to change, and then we've got to patiently seek, seek counsel and how we can go about it. As I said, it may be clunky, but we cannot despise the day of small beginnings. We've got to take up singing and dancing and feasting. And you'll find uh, rewards and encouragements along the way. Uh, one one um, pastor says that it, the good thing about taking up singing and feasting and dancing is it, it's immediately a payout, right? It's not like chewing on gravel. You know, you're like, I hope this starts to taste good after a day, right? It's, it's lovely. It's human, right? So that's what we'll do tonight. The Hasics have done wonderful in hosting and, and doing this thing and experiencing folk dancing and singing and feasting and doing the very thing that should make the world envious and jealous in the most gospel-oriented way, right? Not in a sinful way. And that's really our call is to do that so that we will find these little rewards along the way and see our students 
um, grow and mature and turn out faithful children who are dangerous to the culture, yes, right? Because they are anchored in things that are not passing. We want to stir them and ourselves to greater faithfulness, greater thankfulness, and ultimately, hear me, maturity. And this is done uh, through taking up these matters, not losing heart. It is not, um, it's not a small task. And as I said, I'm happy to share with you what we've done um, in my abundance of gray hair, all my wisdom, ha-ha. I'm happy to show you uh, kind of what we've been attack, uh, attacking in Monroe, in Duck Dynasty land where I live. Um, but it's been a joy to do that as it has been to be with you. So um, sing, sing daily, dance, feast, um, dispense with this notion that music is extracurricular in God's kingdom. Dispense with it, be done with it, repent of it. It wasn't you who started it, but joyfully repent of that. And we will see our classical Christian education movement change in ways that we will not see if we just continue to read better books. We read better books. We read so that we can understand the great author of books. We sing the hymns and psalms and spiritual songs to one another and to him so that we can understand the great singer of song who continually tunes the world, who sets music in and around us, who has given uh, us the opportunity to respond back to him in kind. Um, so thank you for your attentiveness. Uh, allow me to close this with prayer. Our Father, we thank you now uh, that in you we live and move and have our being. We thank you for the great gift of song. And we thank you uh, for the opportunity to sing. And we do thank you that you didn't just create and leave us alone, but instead we we give you thanks and praise that, that through these great gifts of song and, and even in the studies of the great books and art and classical Christian education before us, that we can learn and find wonder in being more shaped into the image of your Son, our Savior Jesus. Uh, we ask that you uh, would find and grant us uh, both encouragement and grace uh, to see our hearts cheered with the remaining time of fellowship, that we would go forth from this time as a more thankful, more musical people in how we, we live and train the children that you've given uh, us to oversee. And, and we, we ask all these things in the name of Jesus, your Son, our Savior. Amen. Thank you all.